Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of First Time, Long Time. I'm your host, Nathan, along with my co-host. I'm Roman, everybody. All right, cool. So, uh, yeah, we haven't been back in a long time, have we, Roman? No, you know, um, we're missing our, our, our the third musketeer, um, Noah Tlerski. May he rest in peace. Um, graduated this year, so... Hopefully we maybe we can bring him back sometime for a future episode if he's free. But um, it's gonna be a two man two man show here, much like Los Angeles Lakers. So let's be let's be honest. Tulerski doesn't have time for our for our antics anymore. That is true. That is very. <laughs> what's, he is, he, what's he graduated? He's, he's, kind, of, he's kind of free of it. We're, we're proud of you. Keep doing whatever you're doing. I don't know. <laughs> That's a good start. All right. Um, so yeah, lots going on in uh, in sports right now. Uh, the World Series just wrapped up a couple of days ago with uh, Game Six, Dodgers beating the Rays. Um, tough one for you, McCovey Chronicles, or whatever your SB Nation site is called. Yeah, um, it's taken a lot for me to come around to this. Um, it's been a uh, in a, in a tough year, this might be the toughest thing that I've had to deal with. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sure, no. um, but I've been, I've relied on being able to make fun of Dodgers fans for not winning a World Series since 1988 for so long. I don't know what I'm going to do. What can I even say now? I, it's, it's, but you know what? The best team in baseball won. I can't, I can't deny that. You know, they were the better team. You expect them to mess up every year. And in 2020, 2020 is the year where they don't mess up. You know, 2020 is the year where Clayton Kershaw pitches like Clayton Kershaw pitches in the playoffs. And um, he was clutch. I voted on, I voted on Kershaw as, uh, as my MVP. Seager was well-deserving. Um, yeah, this, this team is a machine. This team is a machine. They, not only do they have nearly infinite resources, unlike many other MLB clubs, they are smart about that. They are smart about using them. And um, yeah, this outcome probably should have happened several years ago, but Dodgers fans, uh, Dodgers fans have their championship now. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, watching that series, I watched a lot of it and, you know, I'm honestly stunned it went six because the Rays did not play very well. Um, Randy Rosarena, in my eyes, was the best player in that series. Uh, if he had won, he would have been MVP. Oh, well, without a that, doubt. That no one else was there. You know, Lau had a couple big homers finally after an abysmal playoffs. <laughs> Other than that, I, I'm hard-pressed to find someone in the lineup who really lived up to expectations. And the rotation... Snell pitched well in limited innings. He did not go very far. Morton didn't pitch that great. Glass now had two pretty bad starts. The bullpen, at the end of the day, when you face these guys three, four times in a five-day stretch, the Dodgers hitters are too good to be, like, surprised by what's coming at them. So it's not shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely agree with your point on the hitting. I think um, – Lau didn't play up to his stand. Is it low or Lau? I, I never know. It's said both ways, and I, I feel it looks like low, but I guess and there's two of them. Brandon there's Lau, two of them on the Rays. Yeah. Uh, Brandon and Nate. Uh, yeah, Brandon Lau did not play up to his regular season standard when uh, he was uh, 
bit of a dark horse candidate for um, for potential MVP consideration. And yeah, I agree. It's it's a little bit weird. Snell Snell was the only their only starter to have um, to have a great deal of success in this series, and he didn't pitch deep into the game. Whereas they left Glass now out there to drown in games one and five. I mean, it. It didn't. It just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And um, Nick Anderson's decline, I think, was another big storyline. And this was this was a problem for the Rays all playoffs. But really, it was it was amplified in both the ALCS and the World Series. I thought um, I thought Anderson was the best reliever in baseball in the regular year, but um, things changed. They really did, and that's kind of what was most stunning about. Cash is called to pull out Snell in game six because I'm all for playing aggressive, especially in an elimination game. It makes sense. I, I, I can't disagree with the call to bring out Blake Snell when you're about to face Bet Seeger for the third time through the order. But to bring in Nick Anderson, who, as I read a tweet, has not been good in the first time through the order in the playoffs, which is funny because that's <laughs> all the faces. Um, it was just shocking to me, especially because I felt like Cash was pushing a lot of right buttons. But I would have rather had Aaron Loop or Ryan Thompson out there, not to say Castillo or Fairbanks out there, because they were just getting more outs. And the fact was is that Nick Anderson came into a one-run game, runner on first. This is what he's paid to do. This is his job, is to get out of that with limited damage. Your second pitch, Mookie Betts lays the double, and a few minutes later, the game's over. And really, once the Dodgers took the lead and got that insurance run off of Pete Fairbanks. We really felt like the game was over just because I I would argue over the last two rounds, their hitters have, uh, have been um, subpar except for Randy Rosarena. And their problem is that they strike out a lot. They don't really put the ball in play. And you got, you've got a lot of all or nothing guys like Hunter Renfro and Mike Zanino in there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they're swinging for the fences, but they're also going to strike out a ton. And in small sample size, that might that might kill you. And you know that's okay against teams like the Yankees, who they beat. Um, you know, teams where they don't necessarily have a lot of strikeout stuff in the rotation in the bullpen. That's all the Dodgers have is strikeout guys. And they just—it was a bad matchup for the Rays. I think I would agree. You've got guys, you know. A lot was made about how the Rays guys in their bullpen, all of them throw 98, right? But the Dodgers have guys that can do that too. Like they've got Dustin May in the bullpen with with a two-seamer that I think defies physics. Um, Julio Urias, who locked it down at the end of the game. Uh, Victor Gonzalez, Bruce Dargratarol, those guys could throw hard. Um, seriously, Bruce Dargratarol throws 100 and like it looks easy. It looks easy. I, I don't know how I don't know how hitters make contact in MLB these days. But um, but the point is that you know without you're you're not going to beat the Dodgers one to nothing. And I I looked on base on Baseball Reference. They haven't been shut out in any game in the 2020 season. So at some point your offense had to show up, and so you can't you can't place uh, you can't place the blame squarely on one pitching decision. No. Um. I'll tell you, someone whose stock skyrocketed was Rios because, you know, he's a guy. Oh, I thought you were going to say Tristan's stock rocketed. Well, that's true. Um, <laughs> sports executive Tristan Lee, if you're out there listening, I hate you. Um, but congrats, buddy. Um, 
but he's a guy who was a top prospect coming up, supposedly the next great starter, had some injury trouble, was out for a year, I'm pretty sure, at one point. Came into this playoffs and proved he's a weapon no matter where you deploy him. Like, he could start, he could finish, it doesn't matter. He's going to go out and get you outs. And I was really impressed. I didn't think, I, I'm not going to, I didn't think, it's not that I thought he was washed up or anything. I just thought he was going to lose a little bit after all the injuries. But no, he, he looked more nasty than I've ever seen him. You know who I was most impressed by? Tell me. I was most impressed by Corey Seager's performance all postseason. I think in postseason's past, and correct me if I'm wrong, he's been a perennial underachiever. Um, and he's always been like a, an above average to all-star type player in the regular year, but seemed to disappear in the biggest moments. He did not do that this playoffs. Um, I'm just reading some of his uh, – percentile rankings on StatCast, uh, exit velocity, 97th percentile, uh, expected weighted on base at average, 98th percentile, barrel percentage, 95th percentile. Like he hit the ball and he hit the ball hard uh, all season long. And once he continued it into the playoffs, I think that gave the Dodgers the offensive burst that they needed because you knew guys like Turner and Muncie, more, more steady guys, you knew they were going to show up. Um, but I think Corey Seager's jump made the biggest difference. Yeah, no, definitely. <sighs> yeah, it's, you know, and, and I, I got to say, I think I think we got to say the Dodgers are the favorites again next year. Like, this is going to be a good team. Like, who are they going to lose? Jock Peterson? Oh, no. Um, this is a good team that's set up for success for many years ago. And like you said at the beginning, you're matching up resources with a very smart front office that makes the right calls, that pounced on Mookie Betts, um and had the ability to do that and uh, they're just a good team um I, it's tough to be an cannot team fan right now i cannot believe boston let Mookie Betts he he was always the second best player in baseball and they just they let him go for nothing they let him go for nothing um and they gave him to the dodgers who have infinite resources <laughs> I mean, that is there for 12 years. We could talk about how, you know, guys like Seager, Bellinger really stepped up in the playoffs, and they did after not having that great performance in the past. But I think Mookie Betts makes the difference between them winning that Brave series and then making their way to the World Series and then winning that. He just consistently produced, played an exemplary right field. There's a reason he's the second best player in baseball, and he showed it on the biggest stage, and that's why they won. And it's crazy. This isn't even like this isn't even like the best he could be. This is Mookie Betts' performance this season is just typical Mookie Betts. He's just going into the office, playing great defense, cutting people up at the plate, hitting for power, do, doing it all. Really, I, I I don't have a one bad thing to say about Mookie Betts' this game. He's a fantastic player, and he's going to be in LA for a long time. Um. Before we sign off on the baseball bit, um, why don't you give me, I'll give you, why don't you give me a quick, tell me what, what the what Nationals offseason is going to look like. How are they going to get back to the playoffs in your mind? I'll give you a quick little Giants preview and then we'll move on. Well, how's that sound? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, the Nationals offseason, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been interesting. I think there are a lot of players who 
are kind of on the older side. They were an older club when they won the World Series. Um, and they, uh, they declined the options of several key guys from that run, including Adam Eaton, Howie Kendrick, and uh, Anibal Sanchez. And so it'll be a fascinating saga of rebuilding to me, but it, it's all centered around whether or not they could lock down Turner and Soto for a long period of time. Like Trey Turner and Juan Soto are the clear cornerstones of this franchise. And as long as they have those paired with great pitching from Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin, uh, they're going to be a contender for, for quite a while there. And uh, I, saw, I saw something funny on Twitter. You know how every team is, um, is – or every, like, fan tries to appeal to Trevor Bauer on Twitter to join their team? Yeah. <laughs> so, so some fans said that uh, if Trevor Bauer were to join the Nationals, um, that would create the, maybe the greatest four-headed pitching rotation monster that, that we've ever seen. And, uh, and his agent said, his agent said that, that that's one of the better pitches she's heard on Twitter. Um, like obviously it shouldn't mean anything, but it'll be interesting to see what kind of transactions the Nationals go to as they as they transition to being a little bit younger of a club, and um, as some familiar faces depart for greater pastures. So we'll see how it goes. What are the Giants looking like? Well, let me tell you what they're looking like. They can't pitch at all. They have no pitchers. Not a single one. Um, I forgot. Um, I think the tough thing. I I think the Giants really took advantage last offseason of picking up guys like Kevin Gosman and Drew Smiley, some guys who've been hurt, guys who've been ineffective, but still had the peripherals there. Um, and they looked good. Smiley and Gosman both look good, and they're going to parlay that into big paydays. Not big paydays. There's no. They aren't. They aren't <laughs> big this offseason. Um, yeah. Probably Springer and Real Muto. Um, but I think. Thing for the Giants is really going to try to be getting some pitchers in there, because I'll say one thing: I was just a little disappointed that the bullpen in a year like this wasn't able to just mix and match and find guys to to build around in the bullpen. Not that you have to build around a bullpen, but we've seen we saw in the playoffs that you know these guys come out of nowhere. You know, the Rays bullpen. I'm not none of them were first round picks. You know, and bullpen guys don't need to be first round picks. But I think what they're going to need to do is take some chances on some bullpen guys. The offense is pretty much right there right now, which is nice. Um, nice to see. But And reinforcements are on the way. Um, our farm system is looking up for the first time in years. But that's also from a position player stance. We have Seth Corey, who I think is going to be a top-of-the-line starter someday. Everyone else is super young and super um, unproven. So I think it's really going to be picking up guys that have been, you know, roster casualties that – we're non-tendered. Like those are the guys they got to be looking at. Um, we picked up someone from the Marlins last year, Harleen Garcia. Looked great this season for the Giants. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of guys we need to be picking up, and just kind of just toss them all out there and seeing what works. So I don't think we're going to see a playoff club next year. I think the Dodgers and the Padres are going to be the class of the NL West again. Um, but I think I think the future is pointing up. I, I you know it's a little tough to be a Giants fan watching the Dodgers right now, but. I think we're going to get back there. Um, and that's where, that's where we're looking this off season. Cool. Yeah. And uh, I would just add that <laughs> I would just add that uh, between 
in the in kind of the in the uh, earlier part of the decade, it was uh, tough to be a Dodger fan. No, no, you're right. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, before we start talking Georgetown hoops, which I experienced severe withdrawal from every every season, uh, <laughs> why don't we jump around a, a little bit to some of the other professional leagues? Uh, starting starting with uh, why don't we start with uh, the leagues that have finished their seasons, the NBA and the NHL. Uh, isn't it interesting that in this weird year with, with like weirdly small sample sizes and a small number of games played, the best teams, like clearly the best teams won in baseball, hockey, and basketball? It is a little shocking. Um, before you start looking at it too deep, like, you know, you would think that in a year like this, weirdness would rule the day. But really what it's come down to is talent has won the day. And, yeah. you know, the best guys – I mean, we also got to say, I don't know if it's because of um, how the season's worked. I doubt it. But all three yeah. – the, the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Los Angeles Dodgers were extremely healthy, extraordinarily healthy throughout their playoffs. Yeah. Lightning didn't have Stamkos. I'll give them that, you know. Their captain, one of the best goal scorers of the generation. But other than that, and he was hurt for long before this anyways. But other than that, they were very healthy teams. And so when you combine talent with health, there's no way they're going to lose. So I, don't, I can't really explain why these teams were more healthy. But I was looking at the Dodgers roster. And like for the entire season, 60 games plus the playoffs, they're like, quote unquote, third stringers got like, 10, 15 at-bats all year, max. Everybody stayed in the lineup. And that makes a difference. And I can't explain it, but you're right. The best teams won in all the leagues. And that's kind of cool to see sometimes. It's interesting. Like, uh, pretty, much every, pretty much every year in basketball, I would argue that the best, <laughs> team, the best team wins. And rarely it does the best team win in hockey. Yeah. Um, but... On, on the Stamkos point, I would I would argue that at this point in his career, Stamkos isn't really the focal point of the Tampa Bay Lightning anymore. They've got oh, they've got guys like Nikita Kucherov and Victor Hedman, um, who are tremendously and Braden Point, who are tremendously talented and sort of taking on that taking on that role of being being these incredibly skilled leaders um, in their locker room. And so, to some extent, they don't. They don't need Stamkos. No, you're right. And I was I was gonna say that, oh, you know, even if he's not as good, he's still a you know a third could be a fantastic third line center, but their third line killed in the playoffs. They're Goodrow, Coleman, and what's his name? Um Palat? Whatever his name is. Yeah, let me let me pull it up. Um and it doesn't it doesn't really matter. But you know. They were talented up and down the lineup. So it was really, really cool to see Stamco score a goal in his in his minutes that we was in. But you're right. You know, so that just that just gives my point more that they were extremely healthy teams that won it all. And when you can buy town and health, there's really nothing you can do. Right. Um and yeah, the Lakers, Lakers kind of had the same thing. Uh there were a couple falls that Anthony Davis took in in a couple different rounds but otherwise they were they were very healthy and 
when they when they turned it on defensively, it seemed like nobody could score, right? And when you could do that and then have LeBron James barreling to the basket like a freight train, like you're not gonna you're not gonna beat him. You're not gonna beat him. And I mean, I was, you know, every time I saw Davis take a fall and limp around, like, I still have PTSD from the Warriors losing KD and Clay in the 2019 finals. Um, but he kept jumping back up, and, you know, they're world champions because of it. That's right. Um, shifting gears a little bit to the NFL, we've got... We've got a couple interesting games uh, coming up this weekend. First is uh, Pittsburgh versus Baltimore, which I'm really looking forward to. Pittsburgh is a good team. I remember you told me that Pittsburgh was going to be good, and I said, sure, 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 whatever. Um, but I've just been really impressed. It's, a, it's not a, you know, when I thought it, when I think of Pittsburgh, I was thinking of, you know, the days when they had, Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown, Ben Roethlisberger throwing to them. And, you know, that was a team of big-name players. Now they got James Conner, Chase Claypool, you know, lesser-name players. They're producing at the same rate. So it's starting to – to me, it's starting to say, especially when we see Le'Veon Bell struggling and Antonio Brown only now back in the league after – because he's a nutcase. Um, Jesus. That it's, it's, a, it's a Steelers culture. It's a Steelers offensive philosophy that really, really makes a difference. Yeah, and I would I would just add on to that. I said um, I said at the beginning of last season that Pittsburgh would win that division, not not knowing that uh, Ben Roethlisberger would go down with injury. Um, they were they were probably the best defense in the league coming down the stretch in the regular season, but it did, it never really mattered because they were playing a guy whose name is Duck at the quarterback position. His name is <laughs> Duck. You're not going to win with Duck, so. So now that they have Ben and Chase Claypool and James Conner, Deontay Johnson, James Washington, James Washington, um, all the guy, Eric Ebron, like their their offensive arsenal has come back at full force, and their their defense is still leading the way. Minka Fitzpatrick uh, is tremendous in the defensive backfield, and having pass rushers like. TJ Watt and uh, Bud Dupree certainly helps as well. And I know there was a lot of there was a lot of chatter when they traded for Fitzpatrick last year. Like, why, why would you do this? It's a lost season. Well, we're seeing why right now. Um, and I gotta say, there was some forward thinking there from the Steelers front office, and I give them a lot of credit. I am excited to see them play Baltimore. Um, I think, I think seeing them try to contain Lamar Jackson. Um, it's going to be fun because Steelers, they were able to keep Derrick Henry under wraps as much as one can keep Derrick Henry under wraps last week against the, against the Titans. Um, and so do I think the Ravens are a more talented team? Yes, but I, I, I have a lot of faith in the Steelers defense right now. Definitely. And, uh, and, you know, Pittsburgh, we, when you think of Pittsburgh, you think of a championship type culture. You think of stability. You think of uh, you think of you think of great defense. Um, all all the ingredients are there for them to make a deep run. Yeah, that's true. All right, a uh, couple more games we we talk about. Uh, we got an interesting one here: 49ers at Seahawks. What are your thoughts on facing, to me, the 
uh, MVP candidate. Well, well, Bob, remember what I said <laughs> earlier about no injuries and talent? Well, the Niners are a, a case study on all injuries and talent. Um, it's just been a rough year. But, you know, every step of the way, Kyle Shanahan is proving to be a tremendous coach. Um, and I got to say, I was watching the Seahawks versus Cardinals game on, um, what was it, Sunday night, Monday night, whenever it was. Um, Sunday night. And I wasn't that impressed. I'm going to say it. I think, is Russell Wilson a better qu- quarterback than Jimmy Garoppolo? Yes. A million times, yes. But I think if Carson doesn't go this weekend, um, I think the 49ers secondary is sneakily better than people think it is. Jason Verrett has been just amazing in his return from injury. Um, I don't know if we have anybody that could go up against DK for a jump ball, but um, I, I give the Niners a good chance this weekend. I think going to come down to the unsung heroes on the line that have been keeping it up after Solly Thomas and Nick Bosa went down. Um, but I, I think it's going to be a close game at the very least. I agree. I think, uh, I think Seattle's defense is um, one of the worst in the league, for lack of better words. And I think, I think uh, underestimating any team coach by Kyle Shanahan would be a mistake. And I, I think that letting Kyle Shanahan out of your building would be a much bigger mistake. Yeah. I wonder if any team's ever done that. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, yeah. Washington. Washington has let a lot of talented coaches go, and Kyle Jennings is just one of them. Yeah, it's true. All right. Um, so shifting a little bit towards uh, – season preview for Georgetown men's and women's basketball. Uh, the Big East Conference had their media day uh, on Wednesday, the October 28th for the men and uh, Thursday, October 29th for the women. Obviously, UConn joining the, uh, joining the conference has huge implications. What are your thoughts on that first? Well, I mean, I think UConn men's team is an underrated squad. Um, I think they're going to be, um, I think they're going to fit right into, into the Big East culture of a lot of pretty good teams, like duking it out, going one and one against each other, um, and then just utter chaos in the Big East tournament. Um, and obviously the women's side, you know, UConn, just a legendary program. Um, I, I wish we were on campus because I would go. I wouldn't be able to wait to go to the Georgetown UConn women's game. I know we would lose pretty handily, um, but I think that would be fun to watch. But speaking of the women's really quick, um, and I feel free to jump in on UConn too, the women's team has some crazy turnover this year. I haven't been able to keep up with it. I know you keep up with it better than I do. What can we expect of the Georgetown women's team this year? Kind of starting at not ground zero, but just, you know, in a time of transition. That's a good question. Uh, there are a lot of moving parts on this team. Uh, I think in total uh, at the end of last season, I think there were like something like nine departures, uh, including graduation as well as, uh, as well as transfers. And so uh, looking at this roster right now, somebody's going to, one of these people that's 
been around, you know, uh, like an Anita Kailova or Grace Ann Bennett or uh, Brianna Mayfield, Shania Wright. Somebody's got to step up and and be a uh, and be a score that we've really been missing um, since our freshman year when we had when we had Deanna White and Dorothy mm-hmm. Adamako and Michaela Vinson. Um, I would love for Jillian Archer to step into a big role uh, after she took her transfer after she took her transfer year um, last year. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And with less practice time for these women, um, it's gonna be it's gonna be a pretty difficult year in a conference that also has UConn, DePaul, and Marquette, who are kind of the big powers in women women's basketball. Yeah, it's, um, you know, you're right. At the end of the day, no matter, you know, these are all college basketball players. They're all better than any normal schmo. So someone's going to step up. Someone's going to take that opportunity. I'm kind of excited to see who it's going to be um, because the minutes are there, the, time, the, the, the scoring usage is there um, for someone to take that. So I think it's going to be interesting to watch um, no matter what. See how it all plays out. It seems like it seems like both both the men's and the women's teams are uh, are going to be placed near the bottom of the Big East, and uh, and at least the talk from the men's side is that uh, they feel they're being disrespected. They feel that they have a chip on their shoulders, and they feel that this is this is a group of guys that ha- have a lot of character and believe in Patrick Ewing as their head coach. You know, I'm all for a chip on their shoulder, and I, I get it, but I don't know if they've been disrespected. I I think, didn't Ewing say, too, that he would pick them to be at the bottom of the Big East? Like, you know, this is a – it's a – it's tough. I mean, it's a very new roster, just like the women's team. Um, I You know, they have some veterans coming in, uh, which is kind of exciting, with Carrie, Harris. Um, Judy. And Chudy, yes, uh, thank you. And um, but I don't know if they would disrespect. I think they have a lot to prove. They have a lot to prove. And I, I really hope they prove it. I hope they have it within themselves that they want to prove it. But East is such a deep, deep division that, you know, I could see them losing out. I could see them clawing their way to a 500 finish in the, in the conference. I don't know how it's going to go, but I know they're going to be entertaining games. They're going to be close games no matter what. That much I could promise. <laughs> you, you just get that from from watching uh, from watching Georgetown games, especially this this past season. Um, I would say that I would say that um, every season at Georgetown should be about wins and losses when it comes to men's basketball. But it's also about culture, and it's also about you know, are these guys fighters? Are these guys willing to stick it out for each other and and stick together during the tough times. And, um, and I think that, I think that, I think that the conference schedule this season will test a lot of that. And it'll test if we were all right about how Coach Ewing built culture here. Um, and so it, it might not be the easiest season, but it'll be, it'll be a very telling season for, uh, for the character of the guys that are staying. And I think that's a good thing because, you know, for those who are going to be around the, the year after, um, when we have one of 
the one of it's a top 20 recruiting class in the nation right um with with room to go up with you know i'm not like we all need to calm down about the aminu muhammad talk but there's people out there we're still looking at you know um so for all the people who are going to be back you know the wahhabs um the Sibleys, the I think doesn't even Don Carey have two years of eligibility? Um, yes, he does. You know, for those guys to really buy in the culture and become the leaders so that when this freshman class comes in, they have people to talk to, they take them under their wing, they get ready to get started from day one. And, you know, this is a shortened training camp. Things are all really weird. Um, so going into next year, that continuity is going to be super important. Um, I think you're right. I think, you know, obviously wins and losses is what's going to matter at the end. but you know, I don't think anybody should, you know, I've been, <laughs> I've been one to denounce Patrick Ewing in the past for the job he's done. Um, but, you know, this season, I think really what we should be looking for is how these guys come together um, and how they prepare for the next year when I think a real run is possible. Yeah. And so, some of the athletes coming in this next class are, are absolutely insane. Um, we talk a lot about Ryan Matumbo and how how he was kind of a must get just for the dignity of the program as well as the fact that he's you know a top eighty guy. Um, but I think I think people are really really sleeping on the rest of this class. I think Jordan Riley, in particular, I think is just a jump out the gym type athlete. And he seems like he seems like he's got a chip on his shoulder. He seems like he's got a good head on his shoulders. And um, I'm really excited to see what him and Tyler Beard could do uh, in the uh, in the next class. But that's that's still a bit of a ways off. But good to have some optimism. Good to have some direction. Yeah, it it really is. And I think I think Patrick has seen that in recent years. You know his team, no matter how well the coach they be, they, they've lost a little bit. They haven't really been able to run in transition. Um, and that, that really does make a difference when you're trying to keep up in leagues like the Big East. So to have guys like Riley and Beard, I think Billingsley is also an underrated player that um, we not necessarily stole, but we took from Arizona, which is nice to see. Absolutely. So I definitely think that Patrick – Going into year, what year is this now? Four, five? Um, this will be year four. Year four. Um, he's starting to figure out what kind of guys he wants in his program. And, you know, I feel like we can kind of take for granted that, you know, co- coaches who've coached in college for a long time know what players they want. I think Patrick's finally coming into that, and I think that really makes a difference, um, especially when it comes to priorities in recruiting and kind of building the team that you want. Sure. Um, also want to give a shout out to uh, a lot of the uh, Georgetown men's basketball alums, Gene Smith, Trey Dickerson, Chris Wright, Austin Freeman. They've, they really came together and uh, it showed that 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 familial connection between the alumni is real and is true after all the departures last last offseason. So want to give a shout out to them um, in the Big East. As we said, it's a, it's consistently a competitive conference, and every team every team has the potential to beat every other team um, on any given night. And so, 
so we we kind of think of Villanova and uh, Creighton uh, at the top of the table right now with Providence, UConn, not too far behind, and Seton Hall. Uh, beyond those five, what are what's your kind of dark horse team that you think could do a lot of damage in the Big East? Did you say UConn already or no? I said UConn, but it – but the consensus is probably that they're a tier below uh, Villanova and Creighton. You know, I, well, okay, I agree with that. Villanova and Creighton are, are pretty, pretty top two for me right now. But I think when we look at a, a dark horse, I think we got to look at a team um, like Xavier. I really like Xavier. Um, I really like the squad they put together. Um, I'm trying to, trying to pull up. Box score right now from the last. I I went and watched. I went and covered an Xavier game last year for the Voice, um, and it was an Xavier win, obviously as many. Oh, that was the game where Najee Marshall traveled at the end. I don't recall. He had, he had a he had a game winning three at the top of the key. I was um, I was furious. Tim Tim had tied the game uh, at six at either sixty or sixty one before that shot. At 63, I believe. Um, oh, 63. Yeah, you're right. But it's a, they put together a good team. You know, um, a guy like Najee Marshall, he's coming back, right? Just to confirm there. No. He's not? No. Well, that's disappointing. Uh, who's your dark horse team in the East? Give me a second. Give me a second. <laughs> my mind. I can go first. Uh, I like St. John's, man. I think Mike Anderson is a coach who's been around a lot of places, um, and and he likes to, he likes to play an up up tempo game similar to Coach Ewing, uh, and I think there's real buy-in from their guys. And Julian Champigny is a player I would really look out for. I think that uh, he's a he's a very bouncy guard. Led their team in rebounds. Led their team in rebounds um, last year as a freshman. And um, I think I think he plays with a lot of energy. The team plays with a lot of energy. So St. John's, you know, they might not be in the same they might not be in the same tier as Villanova or Creighton, but I would not sleep on St. John's. I think they could beat any. I think they can beat any team in the Big East on any given night. Um, and if they bring the energy, they'll always have a chance. Yeah. I can't. I can't disagree with you there. Um, Love me some Julian Champion. Yeah, I just don't really have an answer for this. That's okay. Um, I talked about another sleeper team. Uh, I like Marquette. I do. I think bringing DJ Carton, who who's a proven scorer at at a powerful conference, uh, plus. Top, a top 40 freshman in Dawson Garcia who could start immediately. Um, I think they've recovered well from losing Marcus Howard and Brendan, and Brendan Bailey. I think that they'll be competitive as well. Um, but, but it'll just be interesting to see how much they were able to cover for because Marcus Howard did everything on that team. I would say that Marcus Howard is the finest college basketball player I've seen play in person. Um, and so 
they have the pieces there to be able to mitigate that loss, but we'll we'll see how well they can do it in execution. I think it really comes down to how Kobe McEwen looks this year because I did not think he fit very well next to Marcus Howard last year. Uh, I was a little disappointed. I thought he was going to be a really big impact transfer. Um, and, you know, I think he still can be, but I, I think he's going to have the keys in the backcourt. And, you know, obviously you can't, you can't ask anybody to completely replace Marcus Howard. It's not going to happen. But I think as close as he can be to freeing up the game for his other teammates, that's going to be, that's going to make or break whether Marquette stays near the bottom of the conference. Um, and granted that the bottom of the conference is still better than a lot of teams um, or making that step up. All right, we're kind of coming. We're coming to a close on this episode of First Time Long Time. Uh, I would be remiss though if we didn't go back to the baseball issue and um, Dodgers third baseman Justin Turner uh, tested positive. His test results came back positive for COVID during the game, and uh, he was still on the field celebrating with his teammates. Roman, your thoughts? I didn't find out until the next morning um or was it later that night i don't remember um i angrily turned off my tv once i saw the dodgers one um and i just think i just had sheer disappointment for the lack of backbone shown by anybody you know i obviously i blame justin turner for not taking it seriously but i think more blame has to go on the people who just let him go you know, if I'm just in Turner, I and, you know, I don't quite understand how it all works. I'm not symptomatic. I want to be out there with the guys. I don't want to be in the clubhouse when they take that picture. You know, I've I've toiled for years in this organization. I should be out there. I get that. Not a single Dodger staffer voiced enough displeasure to stop him. No one from the MLB came in and locked him in a room and said, you can't go out there. I, it, I'm just disappointed. I... And it just put a damper on what had been a good playoffs. You know, it had worked. There weren't any cases in the playoffs. I don't even know how we got it if they had been bubbled up. I, I'm just disappointed because we've seen commissioners like Adam Silver enforce this kind of thing. And MLB couldn't, couldn't they, they, they half-assed it. They stopped the mid, him in the middle of the game, took him out, then let him go out five minutes later. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I completely agree. I think nobody in this situation is blameless. Obviously, Justin Turner has to feel some degree of personal responsibility, but MLB had mismanaged this this whole season, it felt like, from the beginning, from the first outbreak when the Marlins players knew they were positive and voted to play a game anyways. Uh, I think they did not have the proper enforcement procedures in place. And... Um, and I, I, I thought personally it was shocking that they would, they would play a game with inconclusive tests and let and and those inconclusive tests from Monday the what is it Monday the twenty sixth those inconclusive tests um, came back in the second inning so they didn't even know like if they were positive or negative at the start of the game and the game continued on like like normal and so. So I really have a lot of questions now about the MLB's testing procedures, and I question whether, whether, uh, whether or not 
it's true that there were no positive cases. Like I really find myself questioning their reporting. So um, yeah, just a lot of questions. And again, I, I wrote this, I wrote this uh, in my, in my halftime column, Justin Turner deserves a celebration. He's the emotional leader of the Dodgers clubhouse. And, um, and he's worked so hard and he's been so consistent and so productive. He deserves to celebrate like the world champion he is. But guess what? All of us deserve to live our normal lives. We all deserve that. There's nothing that we did to perpetuate the spread of this virus. We, there, there's no like, like, there's no like moral inferiority on the part of all of us as ordinary individuals who don't really have the power uh, in with regards to this disease the problem is just that we can't we can't celebrate like that we can't we simply cannot go about our lives as if nothing has changed because so much has changed so many people over 227,000 have died in the U.S. alone and and uh it's like it's like a 2.6 percent mortality rate in the U.S. if you're infected but with so many infections that's still a lot and I wrote this again, but we cannot take low probability to mean impossibility. That's the biggest mistake we can make in, um, in a time like this with a crisis as serious as this one. We cannot take low probability to mean impossibility. Uh, I'm trying to find, there's a, there's a Jaguars player who... Raquel Armstead hasn't been able to play all season because he contracted COVID-19, has been having significant respiratory issues. This is a young, in his prime, football player. You know, you're right. Just because it's not probable doesn't mean it's not possible. Eduardo Rodriguez for the Boston Red Sox might never be the same again. And I think the thing that's most disappointing to me is, A, the fact that the country still needs to look to people to, like, set an example. But it's the fact that Justin Turner could have set an example there. MLB could have set an example there, that this is not something to be trifled with. They treated it like a joke. They said, you put on a mask and head out there. You'll be fine, buddy. Go hug the trophy. Go kiss your wife. Go take off your mask next to, the, next to Friedman, and you're going to be fine. And that's – it's just I, disappointing. It's, just, it's the only word. I mean, I, I hope Justin Turner is healthy. I hope that he, doesn't, he didn't infect anyone else in the Dodgers. I don't want anyone to be facing this. It's just deeply disappointing. And on that very night, bright note, we will uh, we will sign off for this episode of First Time Long Time. I have been Nathan. That has been Roman, and uh, we'll catch you on the we'll catch you on the next episode where hopefully we'll uh, we'll be able to take some callers. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Nathan. Talk to you later. All right.